Before we read, let's pray. Father God, we love you and thank you for the opportunity to gather. We pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word, that you would transform us by your spirit so that we might live how you call us to live. That when you look at our lives, when you look at our church, when you look at your church, that you would be glorified, that you would be pleased. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, at the beginning of verse 13, we see a therefore, which means here at City Church, we've learned to ask... What for? What is it there for? And in this case, it refers to the entire preceding content, right? Verses really 1 through 12, but more specifically verses 3 through 12. And, and what that means, right, what we read in verses 3 through 12 is that since his readers have received the great benefits of salvation, among which are the new birth, like we see in verse 3, a living hope and assured inheritance, they ought to be different in how they live. This is the theme for the remainder of the letter. There are a few deviations, but the theme of the remainder of this letter is because of the great benefits of salvation, because of the saving work of God, because of your relationship to him as children, you're called to live differently. Now, Peter's call to hope, it has three parts. We see two metaphorical images at the beginning. And, and what these uh, two metaphorical images do, they set up and they prepare readers uh, for the imperative that's coming. Right? So they set up and prepare, and they really describe how believers are to set their hope. That's the third part. Peter's call to hope, two metaphorical images, one imperative. So let's look at this first metaphorical image. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Prepare, it literally means to gird up, and it can refer to tightening a belt, cinching a rope or cord, or tying something down in preparation for certain action. In ancient times, people wore long tunics, what we might call robes, right? And that hindered their effectiveness if they were going to do something strenuous or intentional. Right, the first thing a Roman soldier did before going into battle was he put his belt on and then girded his loins or tied the corners of his robe into his belt. And when somebody girded up their loins, right, what, this, what this signified was that they were prepared for combat. Maybe just to, to help us connect with this uh, ancient reference, it's like rolling up your sleeves, Right? Does that make a little more, a little more sense? Like when, when somebody says you need to roll up your sleeves and get to it, you're like, okay, I need to put some work into this. That's kind of what Peter is saying. Like we, we cannot go through the Christian life carelessly. We need to gird the loins of our mind, prepare our minds for action as if we were going into combat. That's what Peter wants his readers to do, to approach the Christian life this way. Now this may be an allusion to Exodus 12, 11, where Yahweh instructs his people uh, to prepare and to eat the Exodus meal uh, by girding their loins. Look, Exodus 12, 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, or for those of us who love the King James, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
like Israel in like Israel in Egypt, Christians have been called out of slavery to begin our journey to our heavenly home. Jesus, he also used this reference in Luke 12, 35 and 36 in reference to being prepared for the master's return. Look with me, Luke 12, 35, 36. Stay dressed for action. Let your loins be girded in the King James and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master's return or excuse me, master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Now this this faithful servant, Jesus later contrasts in the passage with an unfaithful servant who is drunk and indifferent to the Lord's return. Now, Peter, he metaphorically, right, he's applying this process of, of staying prepared for action with the mind. He's not saying we should literally uh, gird our loins, per se. He's saying that we should be mentally prepared for the Lord's return, live actively, preparing our minds for action, girding the loins of our mind, or rolling up the sleeves of our minds, what it involves is viewing this world as temporary. Viewing this world as temporary and orienting our thoughts and our lives around the future hope of Jesus' return. Amen? Okay. In other words, Peter wants his, his readers to have a loose grip on this world and a tight grip on the world to come. Now, this doesn't happen automatically, nor does it come through un, uninformed wishfulness or, or um, unfounded optimism, right? There's no amount of positive thinking and meditation that can, that, that can get you to prepare your mind for action, like Peter's calling for. No, it requires effort, concentration, intentionality, and mental toughness, which is why he uses the reference, prepare your minds for action, or gird the loins of your mind, you don't just stumble into this. Now, Peter's second phrase, this metaphorical image, it gives the mode by which the first is realized, by being sober-minded. Now, this image, it comes from the all-too-realistic world of drunkenness. Someone who is drunk or high does not have control over themselves or their body. So we readily understand that sober-mindedness is relatively synonymous with self-control and or discipline. So being sober-minded, having clarity of mind and discipline of heart, is being in charge of one's priorities and balancing one's life so as not to be controlled by the sinful world's corrupting influence or our own sinful desires. Now, obviously, I know we just need to go here for a second. Obviously, this includes not being impaired by alcohol or drugs, even legal ones like the devil's lettuce. That's marijuana for those of you who don't know. <laughs> Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. But, he's, but Peter's not saying that, like he's not saying simply that Christians shouldn't just get drunk or high. Obviously this implies that, okay? Obviously. But he's not just saying that. No, things like career, possessions, recreation, reputation, Friendships, achievement, or authority can also pair, impair our clarity of mind and discipline of heart and produce a way of living that we become so dull to the reality of God that, that we become driven by the attractions of this world. Right? It's, it's not just these, these substances. He's not saying don't develop a, a substance problem. No, he's saying don't get so busy, don't get so caught up in the world that you become like a drunk person. Not control, or not in control of your mind and your body. 
No, you need to reorient your lives so that way you can stay alert. When Christians are lulled into such spiritual drowsiness, they lose sight of Christ's future return and concentrate only on fulfilling our earthly desires. Now, I don't know about you, but I realized this week that there are times in my life, seasons in my life, where I, I, I struggle with this. I get out of balance. I get all out of whack. And I'm like, God, where have you been? Why am I not? Why doesn't the word speak to me as, as it used to before? Or why am I having a hard time praying? Why am I having a hard time focusing? And it's because I'm out of balance. I'm focusing too much on earthly desires. Now, Peter uses the same word later in his letter to urge spiritual alertness, sober-mindedness, and self-control. First Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. A mind numb by emotion and passion, out of control or off balance by worldly lusts and pursuits cannot know the fullness of holy communion with God in prayer. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, a roaring lion, seeking someone to, de, uh, to devour. A mind numb, a, a mind lulled into uh, pursuing the things of this world is not gonna be aware to Satan's attack. And here's, here's the reality, is that he's always attacking, amen? Right? There, there's never a day, there's never an hour or a minute where, where Satan and his demons aren't attacking you. I know we don't see it, but we need to be aware of it. And we can't be aware of it if our eyes are blurred or our minds are numbed by sin and distractions. So Peter wants his readers to be totally in tune with God's plan for history as they set their hope on the future return of Christ and live in that day. So those are the two images. We see that instead of, of being this, in this spiritual drunkenness, this drowsiness, this laziness, we're supposed to be active. We're supposed to live like we are about to go into battle. We're supposed to live like we are in battle because we are according to scripture. But then we see that our hope must be centered on Jesus. This is the imperative. Let's look at it. Set your hope fully Hope is the imperative fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Greek, that word hope is elpizo. Say that with me, elpizo. Scholars. It means to look forward with confidence. Now, that means that the hope that Peter is writing about, it's not just some uninformed wish for the future as we so often use it. Right? We say that I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow even though we have no clue about atmospheric conditions. Right? It, this isn't the kind of hope that Peter's talking about. This word, this verb, hope, elpizo, it, as it's used in the New Testament, it involves the idea of, it, of assurance of that, is, of that which is hoped for will come to pass with certainty. So earlier in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, uh, we saw that Peter wrote about this new birth that is this new birth and this living hope that is grounded in and secured by a certain historical event, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and him grounding uh, this living hope in this assurance, this uh, inheritance, him grounding it in a certain event gives us certainty. We covered that in depth uh, over the last few weeks. So what that means is that because he lives, our hope is living. Because he lives, 
We can know with certainty. Our hope is not uninformed. It's not a wish. It's not a gamble. It will certainly come to pass. And all who believe in him then can know with certainty that they will receive grace and not wrath when Jesus Christ returns. Now this hope, it encourages suffering Christians and prompts a reordering of priorities according to God's agenda, which inevitably leads to changes in one's life. Right, so what we need to understand is that hoping Christians don't live carelessly or selfishly. Hoping Christians do not live carelessly or selflessly. So these two metaphorical image, or images, they set up the imperative. It was helpful for me to read it like this. Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So we're to set our hope on the grace that will be ours when Christ is revealed by preparing our minds for action and maintaining clarity of mind and discipline of heart. Or if it helps, you cannot prepare your mind for action if you're not sober-minded. So you have to be sober-minded in order to prepare your mind for action, in order to set your hope fully on the grace that will accompany the Lord's return. Can't do it any other way. Like Peter's call to hope, his call to holiness has three parts as well. First, holiness is framed in negative terms. Do not, negative terms, do not be conformed. Then in positive terms, using the imperative, be holy. And it ends with a citation. So look with me, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he begins this, this imperative or this second call to holiness with a significant expression, right? As obedient children. The Greek, it literally reads, as children of obedience. What that means is that obedience characterizes every true child of God. Rapid fire, are you ready? Hold on to your Bibles. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews that had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5, 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. J.I. Packer, he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If it is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Like father, like son or daughter. So obedience, that's why we read them quick, obedience distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian whom Paul called sons of disobedience and children of wrath. 
Luke 6, 46, Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Like father, like son and or daughter. Right? Isn't, isn't that what he's saying time and time again? Don't we see this over and over again in scripture? Right, so the basic character, what we need to understand before we move on, the basic character of a child of God is obedience to our heavenly father. The basic character of a non-believer is continual, unrepentant, habitual disobedience. He sets up his call to holiness first by specifying the opposite of what holy meaning or holy living means in negative terms, do not be conformed. Conformed means to be shaped by or fashioned after. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, spiritual worship. Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Negative. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Positive that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, Paul tells the Ephesians to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The passions that characterized our lives before uh, our former manner of life, before salvation, include sinful desires and thoughts, uncontrolled sensual appetites and impulses and other unrighteous motivations and urges that compel the non-Christian. That's not the case now. If you have been born again, that's not the case. And these former passions, they were ours in ignorance. That is, before we were saved and didn't know any better. But the new birth that Paul, or Paul, Peter has been talking about for the last 12 verses creates new life that has both the desire and the power to live righteously. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Colossians 3, 1 through 10, I'm not going to read it, Matthew. It's incredibly long. Read it this week for some homework. But it echoes, echoes Paul's or Peter's call to holiness. So scripture's clear on this point. Right, I'm reading a lot because you don't need my opinion. My opinion doesn't change your life. God's word does, amen? Okay, so, so scripture's clear on this, that the new birth given by God the Father necessarily implies a decisively altered way of life that is characterized by a new and increasing knowledge of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which is expressed in increasingly holy living now. Not some time in the future. Increasingly holy living now, Galatians 5, 19 through 24, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. 
There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and and desires. See, why do we have such an issue with this? Why, why in, in modern Christianity does the idea that Jesus calls us to live a certain way, why is that so controversial? Why do, we, why do we say that, well, no, that's not a sin. No, that's not a sin. Why do we just, like, we could rip out the pages of the Bible. That's what we're doing. Why is that going on? Why do we pretend that these verses don't exist. Paul says that, that the works of the flesh are evident. The fruit of the Spirit is also evident, and he lists them. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions or, or, and desires. Jesus said, and all who would follow me, if they would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow him. He's not calling you to wear a crown. He's calling you to carry a cross, right? And I think so many of us want to be the Lord of our own lives. So we live in constant disobedience to Jesus, constant willing, unrepentant, like just, and not only, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to your former passions, right? Like there are so many churches that are conformed not to the word, but to the world. There are so many Christians who are conformed to their former passions, that are conformed to the world, and they live in disobedience. Friend, Jesus is calling us to holiness. If you are his child, you have the power and the desire to do it through the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He calls for Holiness, then in positive terms, he says, be holy. Holy or holiness, it means being totally devoted to or dedicated to God, consecrated or set apart for his special use and set apart from sin and its influence, pure. Now there's a positional holiness that we inherit at regeneration or the new birth, which we saw in 1 Peter 1 and 2, right? Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That word sanctification there in verse 2, we noted that it's hagiosmos, had to make sure, had to make sure. Hagiosmos, it refers to separation, consecration, holiness, or setting apart. So what that means for us this morning is that the Holy Spirit, when he regenerates someone, he sets them apart from sin to God, from unbelief to faith, separates them from darkness to life, and mercifully separates them from a love of sin and brings them to a love of righteousness. However, this is that positional holiness that we're talking about, but this practical holiness is what we're called to pursue for the rest of our Christian life. And we need to actively pursue it. So negatively, Peter's readers are to stop living sinfully as they did prior to the new birth. Positively, they're to be holy in all, all their conduct or behavior. 
This means that holiness is not only a possibility, but because it's an imperative, a verb of command, it's a requirement. A requirement. And in all emphasizes that it's not just a saved on Sunday, living how you want the rest of your life. Right? The rest of the week you do whatever you want, you come to church, you play holy for a little while, and then you go back to doing what you're doing. That's not the kind of call to holiness that Peter is referring to here. This this call to holiness, it, it It permeates every area of your life. God wants all of you or he will take none of you. Do not call him Lord, Lord and not do what he told you. So holy living then, it requires a change in one's way of life from before when our behavior was determined by our unrestrained impulses, even in ways that were accepted by society, conforming one's thinking and behavior to God's character. That's the call. You're positionally holy at regeneration. This practical holiness, it's working. It's conforming ourselves daily. It's conforming our thinking and our behavior to being consistent with the character of uh, of God, the God who saved us, not the pattern of this world. Now, the moral aspect of that covenant where God revealed his character, we commonly, commonly refer to it as the Ten Commandments. So living in right relationship with God, it meant that uh, obedience to these commandments was required, right? They, were, uh, they completely set Israel, his chosen people, apart from the ancient world. Leviticus 18, 2 and 5. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. Don't be conformed to Egypt. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. Don't be conformed to Canaan. You shall not walk in their statutes. Don't do it. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Don't be conformed to this world. Be conformed to the character of God. So God's ways, they are distinct from the ways of the fallen world, and he doesn't deal with the world on its terms, right? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Therefore, as the people of God, we identify with him by being set apart or relating to the world on his terms, Now, this wasn't a new call to holiness. It was echoed throughout the New Testament, as Peter indicates, using a very common phrase, since it is written, followed by the Old Testament quote, you shall be holy, for I am holy, derived from a few places in Leviticus, which we'll read, and a few other places in the Mosaic Law. But before we read those, this call to holiness is not new. It's echoed. This, this idea of being set apart is not new. It's old. It's consistent with both the Old and the New Testament. Let's see it. Uh, Leviticus eleven forty four and 45. For I'm the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground for I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19, 2. 
speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I am the Lord your God, or for I the Lord Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 27 and 8, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So God is what? Holy. And he calls his people to be what? Amen. By quoting from Leviticus, Peter immediately applies the principle that we saw last week in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 12. He says this in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you to be, or to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. So so he's immediately applying this principle here by citing the Old Testament, they're writing and they didn't know exactly about, about the Messiah, when he would come, who exactly, who, we, who he would be, but they knew that they were writing it because God was telling them to write it and it would serve the future people of God. Peter's readers and us today and every Christian that will come after us until the Lord returns, amen? He also reinforces that point that we discussed earlier, that the goal in both the Old and the New Testament are the same, to create a people who morally conform to God's character. Peter assures that the Old Testament writings were authoritative by quoting the Old Testament. So here's the question. Is the Old Testament relevant for Christians today? Yes, says Peter. Yes, says Peter. I know we like to skip everywhere and start in Matthew, but... There is so much in the Old Testament that informs everything that the New Testament is written about. We need to focus on the Old Testament. We can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. But by quoting from Leviticus, Peter also establishes the principle that Christians are no less the people of God just as ancient Israel was and no less accountable to God than ancient Israel was. So therefore, as as ancient Israel's uh, obedience set them apart, right? Obeying the Ten Commandments, obeying the law of God. Uh, it set them apart from ancient cultures. Just like that, God's people, Christians, are to be set apart through obeying the commands of Christ. Does that make sense? Right, like, we don't, if we call him Lord, we don't get to choose. The, way, the, the holiness that God calls us to, just like ancient Israel, sets us apart from the world that, we in, that we're in today to the cultures that we're surrounded by in the first century or in the 21st century. So here's, the, here's what I kind of struggled with all week, right? We have a call to hope and a call to holiness. We're not to be conformed to the 
to the passions that characterized our former lives before we came to know Jesus. We're to be conformed to the holiness of God, to the character of God. Here's the good news then. That church, we have a community here in this room today who has the same call to live in hope and to live in holiness. We have brothers and sisters, that means in Christ, who can help us stay on the narrow path, who could help us live a holy life. Because I don't know about you, but I cannot do it myself. I need people to help me, Benjamin and Todd, to do uh, Bible reading plans with me every day, to hold me accountable, to make sure that I'm in the word. You need that too. You are in a constant battle if you are a Christian. You put on a jersey, you put on a uniform, or like Ephesians 6 says, you put on armor because you're in a battle. We're in a battle, Christians. We need to live like it. We can't fight it alone. We need our brothers and sisters. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit and we need to rely on the word of God to transform us. And and here's, we cannot, we cannot keep pretending like we've just stumbled into sin, like we can't resist it. If the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, if you have the Word of God accessible to you, what that means is that you have all the information and the power you need to live a holy life. So there's no more, oh, it just happened to me that I did this or I did that. And I mean everything from gossip to lies to to murder or hating your brother or to anger or to everything called to live holy. You can't do it alone.